All right, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 39 through 56 this morning. As you're turning there, uh, the key truth that I would love for us to walk away with is that we are to have joy and faith in God's promises being fulfilled in Jesus. Let me say that again. We are to have joy and faith in God's promises being fulfilled in Jesus. If you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word. This is Luke 1, 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, All generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, as we step into this, as we've been uh, going through um, Luke's gospel, the telling of the story of the coming of Christ, uh, the first advent, as it were, uh, Matt has been emphasizing the necessity for patience and faith. So one aspect of faith is patience, because with God's promises, because a day to him is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day, there's frequently a span of time of waiting for us as God's people. Now, how many of you would say, I mean, I'm really good at waiting, right? Like how many of you, the internet that is like lightning through the air takes longer than 30 seconds and you're frustrated, right? You're like, this, I don't want to live like this, right? I'm not a, this is not a third world country. The internet should work at a certain speed, much less if you're on an airplane flying through the air like you're going on a chariot somewhere, uh, and the internet doesn't quite work right, or the movie takes too long to upload, right? So, so these things are canaries in the coal mine, aren't they? They're evidences of, at times, what really is going on in our hearts and what our expectations are, and think about how that butts up against how the Lord works in this world. Notice how, if you've, if you've done any reading of the Old Testament, there are long periods of time where not very much happens, Right? If you remember, as Matt pointed out, from the end of Malachi to the coming of John the Baptist is about 400 plus years of God's silence. Now, what's important is that he had spoken. So in essence, it wasn't that he didn't continue to engage with his people. He just didn't have anything new to say to them. 
And he gave them about 400 years to, to, to meditate on, to, to simmer in uh, what he had already said and to work through some of those things, right? Do remember that as Christ points out, the Old Testament points to him. So it wasn't like they were without a testament or a witness to the coming Christ. But what they were to do was to wait. And think about how many of them, and even Peter points this out, did not in their lifetime get to see hardly any of this. They just got to see flickers and and shadows and portions, but not the whole story. But they were part of it, and they were glad to be part of it. And we're going to see that in some measure this morning. One of the things I want us to really pay attention to as we look at this text is all the examples of humility and gratitude. And how really significant that is, given how long some of these folks had had to wait. So uh, let me ask you this, though, before we, we get into the text. What has God promised in Jesus that is relevant to your life? If you're a parent, right, Acts chapter 2 uh, means, should mean a whole lot to you. The Abrahamic covenant itself should mean a whole lot to you. It is not guaranteed that our our children will be saved because we've had them baptized. It's not guaranteed that they'll be saved because we didn't have them baptized. There's no guarantee of their salvation outside of the Lord's grace and mercy and providential work. However, we do recognize that for a child to be born into a covenant family, into a church community, uh, uh, puts them really, really close to the throne, does it not? It ought, right? Now, sometimes it gives them some of the worst views, of what Christians have to offer, and we should repent of that and be cognizant of that because our children are watching us because we are stewards of the next generation. As we've talked about around here, that's 40% of our church population. They're the largest group. Don't tell them because they'll start trying to vote for stuff. (laughs) But they are. They're the largest group. And so, so it is important that we recognize that God's promises are something that we can lean on and lean into. Now, I say that as one whose children at current do not make a profession of faith, right? And, and so you may be saying, doesn't that disqualify you? Well, they, they did when they were younger, and I lean on that too, right? They, they have been baptized, and they were, they were baptized as Baptists. Don't tell anybody. Uh, but, but they were baptized by their own profession of faith, and, that, and they've wandered from it. And so I cling to those promises that the power of what they testified to, even though they were children, uh, can and, and, and will, at hopeful some point, uh, have an impact on their head and heart, right? Um, if, if you uh, are in any way, shape, or form, you have any sort of family dysfunction, the promises of God in Christ are very relevant to you. The promise of reconciliation, that if you would pursue you yourself Lay what you have at the altar and go and seek reconciliation as much as it depends on you now. It's not guaranteed. Then there actually is hope that that Thanksgiving and Christmas don't have to be weird every year. And we had that experience actually this Thanksgiving. It was was a beautiful picture. It was hard not to, to, to weep in some measure and have my family think I was having a breakdown of some sort. Uh, but, but it was beautiful to see my daughter there who had not been there the previous couple of Thanksgivings for a variety of reasons. And she was in the kitchen contributing and having fun and able to be comfortable in her own skin around her family. That means a lot. I can't tell you the whole story. To be reconciled to my sister-in-law, who really, really didn't like me when Susan and I started dating. 
And I don't blame her. I was a pretty awful person. She actually called it right. But what she didn't recognize is that Jesus was going to come in and mess everything up. And so, so it was beautiful to be able to laugh with her and talk to my brother-in-law about the Psalms and be able to have this rich conversation on the porch and to be asked by my father-in-law to pray for the family. So those promises, the promises that, that Jesus is always working toward reconciliation, the promise that if something is exposed, that, that God exposes it for the purpose of bringing healing. So for those of you who are currently in sin of some sort and you sit in darkness, if the Lord exposes you, here's what you can know. It is for your good. Run to the throne of grace to receive both mercy and grace in this time of trouble. What a gift it is that we don't have to live under the, the burden of shame and guilt, that Jesus' burden is lighter than shame or guilt will ever be to us. And so these are ways in which the promises of God, and those are just but a few, we could go on and on all morning, but I won't, uh, that are relevant to us. And we need to be able to apply those because remember, Jesus is the yes and the amen to all that God has promised to his people. And so what we see is a picture of that here. But pay attention, like I said, look for humility and gratitude. And let's, let's behold how God is at work in, in two women who are in very different stations in life and, and undergoing very different circumstances, but he is brought together. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, she was about 90 miles away. This was a three or four day journey. And I don't know if you've ever been on foot or donkey for three or four days in a hurry, but that would be a significant thing. That's just trivial tidbit for you. So she made haste into the hill country to Judah and she entered the house of Zechariah. And if you remember, Zechariah is the high priest. He and his wife, Elizabeth, were faithful people. They had longed to have a child because, again, that was something that was evidence of God's promise and faithfulness to them. It still weighs heavy on us today. Those of you who have struggled with infertility, you know the weight and the burden of this. And so they had endured that for decades and decades. They were in their old age when finally Elizabeth becomes pregnant with John. And so, so she's going to see them, uh, and it says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, you need to understand how humble this is. Think about this for a second. Elizabeth is righteous. Right? It's, she's described as such. She has been obedient to the Lord in her service to her husband and to uh, the, the temple. Uh, and she, she has done everything she can to honor the Lord. And for decades, he was either silent or in some way said no to her having a child. Right? And along comes this teenage girl who's barely been alive long enough to do much of anything who the Lord has chosen to place the Son of God in. Think about that for a second. The humility it would take for the older woman who has served and suffered to then say, blessed be the womb 
who holds the Son of God. Blessed, and she's even going to go and say, who am I that this is even being revealed to me? How many of you have, have struggled at times, especially those uh, who, who have battled in some measure for some point of your life infertility? You look around, and it seems like people in all sorts of circumstances can have children, and if, if we're honest in our sinfulness and we kind of judge it and go, they don't deserve them. Why would the Lord allow a child to be born into the kinds of circumstances that we see uh, uh, in, in many impoverished situations or abusive situations or, or whatever it may be? How is it that a child can grow up healthy eating hot Cheetos and drinking mellow yellow? Why does the Lord allow that and yet my child? My, my child is, is not whole or I don't have a child. Now, she, in great humility, is submitting, in essence, to the will of the Lord. She could have gotten caught up in, Lord, why didn't you pick me for that? And in fact, uh, she, she is granted, you may say, well, yeah, but she gets to have John. Like, that's pretty cool. And this kid's running around in the womb there, uh, filled with the Spirit. That's good. Yes, that is a blessing. And she has been faithful. But you know as well as I do that, that we do struggle with second place. Or we do struggle with any sort of submissive thing. So straight away, what we have from Elizabeth is this beautiful picture of how faith in God's promises produces humility. And we also see gratitude. Notice how she says, blessed are you among women, speaking of Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Her faith in the promises of God as she is able to experience them. Now remember, she has waited for decades. And it is now finally coming to fruition. But her faith in that, while at times probably wavered, probably had doubt, as we see with the people of God. She is now able to reap the fruit of that faith in humility and great gratitude. Would that that would be so true of us, right? Like that, that we would be able to celebrate with those who celebrate and to weep with those who weep, which that will come, right? Both of these children will die in the cause of the Lord. And they will not, they will not live as long as Elizabeth and Zechariah. And they won't, they won't even live as long as Mary. And so, so that is a difficult thing as well, to know that your child will serve that purpose in the kingdom of God. And yet, she is still able to say, blessed be the one who carries the Lord, the one who carries the Son of God. And so, can we do that? Are, are we able to first, as Matt has been uh, calling for us to do, be able to wait in patience and trust that the Lord is good and true and be on the lookout for when the fulfillment begins. Now, as of right now, it's not fully fulfilled, right? It's still partial. It's still coming or unfolding, as it were. And yet she is able to, in humility, rejoice and submit and take great joy in and have gratitude. And so this is a wonderful lesson for us. And Mary's going to teach us the very same thing. Notice how she responds. Now, this is called the Magnificat, which is her song, right? I'm not going to sing it for you because I'm, I'm not a very good singer, and I don't think I, I should, uh, I should uh, sully this that way. 
But she begins with, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, you've got to remember, she's still a poor teenager. She does, no, no kingdom has been granted her, no castle, right? She is having to stay in other people's houses. Uh, she doesn't actually have an established home as of yet. She has been on the move and on the run since the time of the Holy Spirit coming upon her. And remember, there are people who will seek her life. In fact, uh, there's a very costly thing that's coming, right? Uh, when, when Herod uh, gets word of this child, he will slaughter uh, a number of children in Bethlehem, right? And cause great sorrow. And so, so she, it's not as, as if she can even rest in what she has. This is not an easy pregnancy, right? For those of you who have been pregnant, how many of you would think like, you know what I think this pregnancy needs? Ride on a donkey for 90 miles in the desert. I think that would improve things. And, and, and not have a place to stay that I could call my own. And constantly be in other people's houses. And yet, what she's able to say is, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And, and so she, she's admitting, look, I don't know why he picked me. She, she's not saying, I deserve this. She's not in any way, shape, or form saying that, that she is holy enough or righteous enough to deserve this. But she sees it as great gifts. So in faith, she is humbled by that. And she is grateful for what the Lord is doing and what he is unfolding in and through her life even though it will not be easy at any point that we see in the story. And she goes on, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, you may look at that and think, what? Is she bragging a little bit, maybe? No, think of the cost of what it's going to mean for her to be called blessed, what she will lose. Remember, she will witness the crucifixion of her own son. The one for whom she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Can you imagine? Being able to continue to trust in God when you will witness the, for all that you know, the destruction of your own son, who she has loved, whom she has disciplined, right? That she has to go back into the temple and retrieve him and kind of say, hey, man, I know you're Jesus and all, but uh, we got rules around here. There's a commandment on this. My translation. And so, and so she, she loved him. And yet she's able to say with great humility that all generations will call me blessed in and through my, my suffering and my waiting and my humility and my gratitude, essentially in my faith. And so she goes on, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Notice she is linking in the promises of God that there is, there is for every generation, the Lord will make sure there's a remnant. For every generation, the Lord will make sure that the word of God goes forward. People of God, hear me. This is one of God's promises that you need to cling to as you see so many things changing 
in this nation and in the political sphere and in the economic sphere and uh, not to mention North Korea wants to be the greatest uh, nuclear power in the world with a complete wingnut at the helm, right? The future does not look bright from here, does it? But this is where the people of God have to be the people of hope, the people of Advent, the people who can say the Lord's promises will not be vanquished by the foolishness of men or women on Twitter or Snapchat or TikTok or Congress or newspapers or People Magazine, any of that stuff. It will not in any way, shape, nor form have the final say. And you may say, well, but shouldn't we try to do something about it? Absolutely. Means of grace. Pray. Pray and seek the Lord as to how you should conduct yourself in faith, meaning humility and gratitude and patience. Pray that you would look like Jesus in how you engage these things. Do we have a right to be angry about some things? Absolutely. But how should we deal with that anger? I'll give you a preview on January 1st. I'm going to preach a sermon on Psalm 4 and tell you more about that. But for now, what I will tell you is that you don't let that anger dictate what you say and do. What you allow that anger to do is drive you to the Lord who will then direct you in wisdom as to how to glorify him and look like Jesus in the process. Will you do it perfectly? No. Is that an excuse for bad behavior? No. And so what we, what we see from, from Mary is that this promise of from generation to generation is something that we can cling to and ought direct how we speak and move and act at present. She goes on, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Notice again the ethical implications of God's promises. We don't want to be on the side of the arrogant. We don't want to be on the side of those who don't care about the poor who bear God's image. We don't want to be the kind of people who are selfish and only self-focused. Because as she says, the Lord blesses those who are outward looking, those who are hungry for his promises, those who are hungry for his presence, those who are humble and grateful. She goes on, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Did Israel do anything to deserve God's mercy? No. Do we deserve, do anything? to deserve God's mercy. No. No, that's never changed. And yet, notice how merciful he is. The examples are myriad in this room. It's myriad in the guy who's speaking to you now. We would do well to testify to each other of God's great mercy instead of hiding those stories from each other and our children. We would do well to, to, with great gratitude, speak not of the kinds of sins we've committed, but the kind of Savior who has saved us from those sins. And he goes on, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Notice she is appealing yet again to the promises of God. She's appealing to the Abrahamic covenant 
that said that all nations would be blessed in and through Israel that fear the Lord. That's a qualification. And those who, who oppose God would suffer judgment and the curse. This is, this is not something that we get to decide. That This isn't an equation that we get to, to change or alter or change the terms of. The Lord has set the terms. And what we need to recognize is that the actual terms he has set are insanely more gracious than anything we have come up with since. Right? How many who claim tolerance on one side are also the most intolerant people when challenged in their beliefs or challenged by an opposing belief or challenged by a conservative belief of some kind, a religious belief of some kind. Think about those that, 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 that claim, hey, we just love is love until it's your love, your kind of love that they oppose. We're not making improvements on judgment and the law, by the way, we're actually just making it into our image in a variety of ways. And we need to recognize that, that God's system actually is how he designed it, set it up, and created us to be, and it works much better when we go with the grain of the system, for he is the creator, we are the created. And in his system, there is mercy and grace inexplicably. I don't, for the life of me, understand it. I don't, for the life of me, understand why I get to share God's word with you. I don't. Knowing myself and what I've done in this life and the way I've carried myself and the arrogant things I've said about the Lord our God when I was a radical anti-theist. I recently read a, a book by Christopher Hitchens called Mortality. And it's the last thing he wrote. For those of you who know who Christopher Hitchens is, he was a radical anti-theist a very bright man, was very fond of G.K. Chesterton and even C.S. Lewis, uh, as well as some other folks uh, who, who are not within that vein. But he, he maintained all the way to the end that he was not a believer. In fact, he had this one statement, and it made me laugh when I read it uh, in the car as Susan and I were <laughs> headed to our, uh, our anniversary trip. He said, I, I think before I die, I'll convert because I would rather a believer die than an atheist. Now, you might hear that and say, oh, is he converting? Uh-uh. No, you got to know Christopher. Christopher was saying, I'd rather the world lose a believer than an atheist. That's, and that was one of his last statements. It was in kind of the marginalia that he was kind of writing out as, as, he, was, as he was dying. Now, think about that for a second. What, what an arrogant and awful thing for him to say. And yet, I used to say the same kind of junk. And why would the Lord spare me? I don't know. Other than his grace is radical and his mercy is far beyond anything I can, I can imagine or understand. But I'm glad he did and I'm glad I get to. And that humbles me and it makes me grateful to be able to, to stand before you uh, and, and declare these things and even see how it takes root in so many of your lives. It's a very humbling thing. And so we, we need to learn from Elizabeth and Mary's example. We need to be able to uh, look at our faith and say, Lord, all right, if, 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 if I'm growing in faith, then I should also be growing in humility and gratitude. Those are two things you can look at. Now, humility is a tough one, right? Almost too much. Huh? Humility, this is why you have to do this in community, right? 
Humility is something you actually have to hear from someone else. Humility is the thing you ought to have the courage, if you cared about your spiritual life like you ought, to ask those closest to you from time to time. If you really, really want to find out, ask your children. You really want to find out, ask your children who don't believe. And so, uh, so this is something that is helpful to us that we can and should from time to, not every day, don't, don't do it every day because that gets obnoxious, all right? But gratitude on the other side is something that we also ought practice in community. It is good for you to be grateful in your prayers in and of yourself, but think about how it helps the other people of God, right? To hear how the Lord is at work. We ought to be able to celebrate with those who have things worthy of celebration. We ought to be able to be like Elizabeth, okay, coming in second place deep in old age. And so, so this is something we also ought to do in community. You ought to create a space, uh, and we, we, we talk about doing this on the Lord's Day Sabbath, where you declare and, and, and talk about God's goodness uh, on a week-to-week basis. You could do it in your small groups from time to time, right? You could do it in any of the groups that you're a part of. You could even just have people get together and, and say, this is a meal in which we're going to declare the goodness of God. There's one rule, you can't complain. The other rule is you can declare God's goodness, and you can eat good, and will take great joy. What would that look like if that's the kind of things we were inviting people into and sharing with one another, as opposed to sending each other articles uh, about the fall of Western civilization, which, by the way, has been reported for a few centuries now. I just want to point that out for those of you history buffs. And it's going to happen sooner or later, right? Somebody, the, the last person's going to be right. We just don't know who the last person is yet. But what we do know, there will be the fall of Western civilization when Christ returns, you know. That will be its final end for sure. But in the meantime, let us celebrate what Christ has accomplished in his first coming and the hope of the second coming. Listen to what J.C. Ryle encourages us to do. He says, let us learn from this holy woman's example, meaning Mary, to lay firm hold on Bible promises. It is of the deepest importance to our peace to do so. Did you hear that? The promises of God are very important to how we go about our daily lives, actually. And the peace with which we have, because again, I'm just like you. If I imbibe too much of the news, it begins to take a supreme toll on me. I begin to see the world as a very frightful and dangerous and not wonderful place, which is in part true, is it not? But it is also in the overlap of the kingdoms. There is wonder and goodness and beauty as well. I don't want to miss out on that because of the stuff that is just terrible that's going on. You don't think that I and my job am not worried about all the economic headlines that are calling for some sort of economic, uh, I think they're using the term, tsunami or whatever it is. Because again, if you start losing money, guess what I do? You don't think I'm not worried about whatever's coming? Uh, the, the rising price of food, uh, the rising price of energy, the rising price of everything? I am deeply worried. And when I read those, I become a less faithful man. I lose humility. 
I lose gratitude. I become fearful. And yet, one of the things that helps to reorient me is the promises of God. Not in any sort of Pollyanna, uh, whistle-past-the-graveyard type way, but in a genuine, true, and hopeful way. He goes on, promises are, in fact, the manna that we should daily eat and the water that we should daily drink as we travel through the wilderness of this world. So let me ask you, what of God's promises have been fulfilled in Jesus in your life and the lives of those around you? This would be a worthy thing for you to take stock of. One of the things that Susan and I do each year on our anniversary is we reflect on God's goodness over the past year. It was really an astonishing and overwhelming thing to do, actually, to go back through the planner and even remember many of the interactions that I've had with you all. Uh, many of the opportunities I've had to see of God's grace in moments where I can remember at the beginning of it, it didn't look good. And yet, in the year's span, the Lord's mercy had permeated and percolated and like leaven filled it up. Not everything is that way, but many things are. And praise God, and that gives me hope for this coming year. And so it's a wonderful thing for us to take stock of where God's promises are at work in our lives. So Luke 139 through 56 teaches us that we are to have joy and faith in God's promises being fulfilled in Jesus. And I would add, as reflected by our growing in humility and gratitude. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus that he has come and he is coming again. Thank you that he continues to intercede for us, to advocate for us. Thank you that the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf when we don't even know what is left to say. God, thank you that the Spirit fills us just as it did Elizabeth and John. We should be able to take great joy in the ways in which you're working in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Would you loose our tongues to share your goodness this day? Would you help us to be able to testify to one another with great gratitude of what you are doing in our lives? Help us to even point out what we see you doing in other people's lives so that they would be encouraged. Help us to encourage one another in humility. Help us to submit to your word as it is what you designed best for us. Help us to be the created and worship you, the creator. God, would you cultivate in us your righteousness so that we would grow in faith. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.